And so I invite you to kneel with me and let's come together and let's have a a prayer before we get started in our our, uh, topic this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to worship thee in spirit and in truth. That is our goal. We thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his life, especially his death for our sins. It's given us an opportunity, a second chance to be among the family again. And we pray that you will forgive us as we claim the blood that he shed for us. We're so very thankful for your holy word. We're thankful that uh, you've made these promises to us. And only a God of love would make such promises. And Father, we bow before thee and we praise thy name. We praise Jesus. We ask for the Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. We pray that you will come into our heart and our minds and open us to the truth and help us to love the truth. For we know the great deceptions are upon the world today. And we do not wish to be deceived, but we wish to see the truth and to share the truth and the love of Jesus with all. We pray for those who can be with us today, those who... um, are ill, dealing with infirmities. Uh, We pray for our families, Lord, and our neighbors, that we may give them the truth before it's too late. We're coming into some hard times. We wish to be prepared. Uh, Lord, we pray for our family members and our children especially, that they uh, will come to remember the old ways, the way they were taught, and be on that sea of glass. Uh, Lord, we we pray for um, we pray for our country that's headed uh, away from Thee. It was a shining light to the world, and uh, now it uh, is following after the beast. We were told this in prophecy, and it's just terrible to see it happen. But on the the bright side, Lord, we know that Jesus is coming soon, and we want to see Him face to face. We pray for also. Uh, this uh, session that's being held in San Antonio, we pray that righteousness will prevail. And Lord, I ask humbly that you give me the words to speak, uh, that they may be your words, not my own opinions, and that hearts will be receptive of the truth. And we thank you for hearing this prayer, for it's asked in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Today is the 4th of July, and in our country we call it Independence Day. For it was on this day that the men who helped to found this country declared, what? Independence from England. You know, I saw an interesting, an interesting thing. You know, there's a, a, a news outlet that does kind of the interviews on the street, the man on the street thing, and... And uh, they went and they talked to college students a lot. They do this with college students. And I'm just amazed at really how ignorant college students are today. It's unbelievable to me. It's amazing. But they asked him what the 4th of July was about. And and the common answer was parties, (laughs) was barbecues, was uh, just a national holiday. Very few understood that it was Independence Day because of... uh, uh, the these men who declared independence from from England. I was just truly amazed. It's incredible. And so, even though this country is going through some very serious changes, and we see them, these changes, and we're alarmed by them, thousands of people aspire to come here seeking refuge still to this day. It's a place of refuge, and I want to talk about that subject of, of refuge with you this morning. There was great persecution against God's people in England in the early 1600s. In fact, this is a part of the Dark Ages, right? We talk about the 1260 years of the Dark Ages. And in the 1600s, God, God's people in England, they were severely Persecuted, and it caused a congregation of of what we call, they called them separatists or 
Puritans. Uh, they immigrated from England to Holland. And after a few years there, they began to desire a land of their own um, from where they could worship according to the dictates of their own conscience and they could preserve their faith. And they were looking for a place of refuge and they found it on the shores of this land that we call the United States of America today. And we fondly recall this story every November, don't we? Usually, you know, during the Thanksgiving holiday. And, and, and as you, you study this story, you can see that God's hand was directing those people to a place of refuge. In Proverbs 14 and verse 26, it says, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and His children shall have a place of refuge. His children shall have. That's a promise, friends. His children will have a place of refuge. That's Proverbs 14, 26. Memorize it. It's a great promise. God's got a place of refuge for us. Did you know that from 1892 to the year 1954, a little bit of history here, over 12 million immigrants entered the United States through the portal of what was called Ellis Island in New York Harbor there. Ellis Island is located in the upper bay just off the New Jersey coast. It's within the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. The inscription on the Statue of Liberty, are you familiar with the inscription? Part of it says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That's why it's called the Statue of Liberty. And I could go on and on about the statue itself. but uh, Do some reading, do some research on that. But Ellis Island is where those that were seeking this refuge would be processed before being allowed into the United States. My, have things changed today, <laughs> haven't they? The immigration station on Ellis Island opened on January 1st in the year 1892. And there was a girl, 15-year-old Irish girl, her name was Annie Moore. She was accompanied by her two brothers, and they, they entered history, in essence, as they entered this new country. She was the very first immigrant to be processed there at Ellis Island the very next day, January 2nd, 1892. And for over 62 years, like I said, more than 12 million people sought refuge through this port of entry into the United States. And, uh, you know, that number is being eclipsed today in a matter of just a few years. Just a few years. But this country is still, although time is closing up, friends, this country is still a place of refuge where the tired, the poor, and the huddled masses can breathe free, at least for now. <laughs> Let me give you a recent example of what I'm talking about. When I say recent, within the last... Oh, 10 years or so. My wife and I decided several years ago to homeschool our children. And uh, fortunately in our country we have the ability, we have the right to do this. Now some states are uh, stricter than others, but you can still homeschool, as far as I know, in any state in the United States. Now I cannot say the same for other countries. Like Germany, for example. Germany has a law that requires children to attend public school. That's the law. And one family, because of their religious beliefs, refused to adhere to that law. That family's name was the Ramaikis. Do you remember them? And not long after the Ramaikis removed their children from school, the principal talked to the parents about their concerns, but urged them to send their children back to class. And a letter from the town mayor said the couple would be fined 30 euros per child each day they weren't in school. That added up really fast. And so when the Ramaikis wouldn't comply with repeated orders to send the children to school, police came to their home and they took the children. 
them away from them. We see stuff like this in our country today. It's incredible. One family, their, their child was walking home from school and he was picked up and taken by the CPS because he was not being watched by his parents. He was walking home from school. His dad made him walk home from school as a punishment, so to speak. Because normally he would pick him up. But he said, you can walk home. And they took the child away. We're seeing things like this all across our country, friends. It's happening. But the police came to the Ramikis' home. They took the children away. And the Ramikis went before a German district judge. This was back in 2007. They went in to defend their decision for homeschooling. But they lost. And so the Ramikis moved to this country, a place of refuge. <laughs> and, and they moved to Tennessee, actually. And at that particular time, Tennessee's pretty good about homeschooling. A Cornell professor stated, and I think it was in Time magazine, that they did this, the Ramikis did this, because the United States is more tolerant of homeschooling due to religion's prominence in our country's founding. People say this wasn't uh, raised as a Christian nation, and I'll agree with that. We, we do have the First Amendment, which says that there is to be no state religion, but these men who founded this country were very Christian men. And it was biblical principles that they founded this country on. And anybody who's honest at, at heart and has an honest uh, and, and, and has integrity would agree with that. You just can't deny that. Um, but they moved to Tennessee. But they were only allowed to stay for a certain amount of time. They had a temporary visa. And as the time grew close to... to uh, uh, the end of their visa, they appealed to a court in Tennessee to let them remain in this country for fear of persecution if they returned to Germany. Now, you and I would fear that, wouldn't you? The appeal was denied. And it looked like they were headed back to Europe. And they appealed that all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And boy, we really trust our Supreme Court of the United States anymore, don't we, friends? No. But they appealed to, to SCOTUS, and they were refused a hearing. And it really didn't look good for them. But on March 4th of the year 2014, this was a year ago, a supervisor with the Department of Homeland Security called a member of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association's legal team who was representing the Romaikis to inform them that the Romaiki family had been granted indefinite deferred status. Do you know what that meant? That meant that the Ramikis could stay in the United States permanently unless they are, you know, they're unless they're convicted of a crime or, or something like that of that nature. And actually, when you think about that, that's an incredible victory that can only be credited to to our Almighty God. I mean, that's just <laughs> it was an incredible reversal. But my point is, and that was just an example, my point is, despite the changes we are seeing in our country, I mean, things like that would have never happened 50 years ago. That family would have been welcomed in. But because we see these changes, and despite the changes we see, many around the world look at the United States as a land of freedom and liberty. They look at this country as a place of refuge. And this is not a new concept. It's not a new concept to have a place of refuge. The Bible talks about cities of hope and promise where people seeking sanctuary could realize the prospect of a completely new beginning. Did you know that? When God divided the promised land between the tribes of Israel, He appointed each tribe vast tracts of property. And every tribe received an inheritance of land except the tribe of Levi. 
The Levites were the, the priests for the twelve tribes. So rather than giving them a single territory, God instructed that they should disperse their, their influence, that holy influence among the possessions of the other eleven tribes. And they would be supported then, the Levites would be supported, by tithe and offerings that the other tribes would give to the tribe of Levi. And people, people are familiar with that. And they kind of stop there. They don't know what else happened. But God also gave the tribe of Levi 48 cities. He gave them 48 cities in which to live. And these cities were evenly spread throughout the promised land. And so, you know, they weren't they were not to simply earn their living by working the land because God called them to ministry. He called them to hold office of the priesthood and conduct the service of the sanctuary. And, and, and so they were, like I said, they were supported by the tithe. Which actually, friends, remains as the support of ministers of the gospel today. It hasn't changed. But out of these 48 cities, God instructed the Levites to set apart six cities that would be distinctly different from the other cities and would serve a unique function. Did you know that? God spoke to Joshua about this, and it's recorded in Joshua chapter 20. We're going to spend uh, a bit of time in Joshua chapter 20 this morning. But uh, beginning with verse 1, says, The Lord also spake unto Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. I'm going to go through this because there's incredible spiritual lessons in this for us, friends. A lot of promises for us, too. Now, three cities were strategically located on each side of the Jordan River because the Promised Land was divided by the Jordan River, wasn't it? And so they had three cities strategically located on each side of the Jordan River and, and three cities on the west side of the Jordan River. So, you know, you had three on the east, three on the west. Drop down to verse 7, it says, And they appointed... Kadesh in Galilee and Mount Naphtali and Shechem in Mount Ephraim and Kirjatharba, which is Hebron, in the mountain of Judah. And on the other side of Jordan, the other side Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness upon the plain out of the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead out of the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan out of the tribe of Manasseh. So you see there they, they had had given the Levites, God gave the Levites 48 cities. Six of them were to be used as cities of refuge, and they were spread evenly around the Promised Land. Three cities of refuge on the east side of Jordan, three on the west side of Jordan. And these cities were chosen so that there was a place of refuge within half a day's journey from anywhere in the land. These cities were prominent. As well, they weren't hidden; they weren't hard to find. The roads leading to these cities were always to be kept in good repair. They were built twice as wide as all the other roads. So it's really interesting. And road signs were posted all along the way, pointing toward the city of refuge. Let me share this with you. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 516. The cities of refuge were so distributed as to be within a half day's journey of every part of the land. The roads leading to them were always to be kept in good repair. All along the way, signposts were to be erected bearing the word refuge in plain, bold characters that the fleeing one might not be delayed for a moment. Any person, she says, Hebrew, stranger, or sojourner might avail himself of this provision. That is very interesting. Because these cities of refuge weren't just for the children of God, were they? They were for anyone who, were, who happened to be in the land. 
You see, very early, God sought to impress upon His people that to put to uh, to put an end to a man's life under any circumstances was a serious matter. Because God is the creator of life. There's value in life. And He wanted to impress upon them that there is value in life. The sacredness of human life is one of the greatest principles of, of the Christian religion. And it's generally, when you think about it, it's generally not recognized by any um, pagan religions or um, any even atheistic concepts. I mean, those concepts, I mean, in ancient history anyway, they had human sacrifices to their false gods. So, God's people were even more distinct from those religions that surrounded them. There was a value to human life. And the seriousness of it rests in the fact that man was made in the divine likeness and was in kinship then with God. You know, after the flood, God declared in Genesis 9, verse 6, that whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Genesis 9, verse 6. And so God had promised a place where the unintentional, did you catch that? The unintentional manslayer might flee. He provided a place that he could flee to. In Exodus 21, verse 13, it says, If a man lie not in wait, but God deliver uh, him into his hand, then I will appoint thee a place whither he shall flee. And God did that. And you, you'll find, you can search the Bible, you'll find that, that there is no such provision made for a murderer. <laughs> okay? You won't find it. There is forgiveness for a murderer. But this was interesting. God sought to, what he did, he was seeking to regulate the ancient custom of private vengeance. Where the punishment of the murderer actually fell upon the nearest relative or the next heir of the one who had been murdered. That's what they used to do. It was vengeance. And God was trying to take, uh, teach a lesson about this in, in, in the sanctity of life. Because Israel... Actually, they stood alone among all the nations, like I said, in, in that value that had been set upon human life. And now God was teaching them even further concerning the justice as well as the mercy of His character. You know, I often hear, talking to people, and, and you're hearing it more and more today when you, you see things like, you know, the, the homosexual marriage and stuff like that, and, and the talk now about polygamy being legal. Well, you know, they had lots of wives in the Old Testament. I mean, God allowed that, right? I've run into those kinds of, you know, thoughts before people bringing that up. But, you know, God God leads people only as rapidly as they're able to comprehend His truth. It's always been the case. That's what, when I say truth is progressive, <laughs> that's what I mean by that. I mean that even in individual life we have our own walk with God and God doesn't give us more than we can handle. He teaches us. And he'll, that's why He keeps bringing back certain tests. If we fail that test, He'll bring it back. He'll bring it back. He's a very patient God. And He's trying to teach us. But we only have a, a certain speed that we can really comprehend some things. And only God knows what that speed is. We don't even know it ourselves. But God only leads his people as rapidly as they're able to comprehend his truth. And this is true of prophets too. You know, they're human beings just like the rest of us. That's why, you know, you, you find where they've made mistakes too. Didn't Moses make a mistake? <laughs> Striking the rock twice? He's a human being. And so this principle was characteristic of the Hebrew laws given by God through Moses. It adapted itself to the condition of people, but always tended toward a, 
a perfection that the people were not at first capable of realizing, see? Unless you find that, that, that that's why you find slavery and you fly, find polygamy and free divorce, you know, in the Old Testament, you find it, it was tolerated. And laws were enacted regulating these practices, though these practices were not, they weren't ordained nor approved by God. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so, here we are. The feeling was deeply rooted in the Hebrew mind that the nearest of kin was the guardian of his brother's life. And for that reason, he was bound to avenge his brother's death. And instead of crossing this feeling or seeking wholly to uproot it, God placed this emotion under temporary checks. Which would prevent it from inflicting great injustice where like no crime had really been committed or or was an accident or no fault of the one who who has been accused for example let's say a man's brother is he's in the field harvesting and, and you know he's harvesting wheat with a friend and the friend's sickle slips out of his hand and it fatally strikes the man's brother And so the man, even without an intimate knowledge of the circumstances surrounding that tragedy, would then be expected to take the life of the slayer in retribution. But it's very clear the man didn't murder his brother. It was an accident. Right? And so God was laying out a plan to improve that primitive system of justice from always being vengeful and protecting your brother's life. And if he was... You know, uh, the slayer took him, even as this example was an accident, in the Hebrew mind, that man had to die. And so God laid out a system. And this is what we're reading about in Joshua chapter 20. We go to verse 4. And, and when he that doth flee unto one of those cities shall stand at the entering of the gate of the city and shall declare his cause in the ears of the elders of that city. They shall take him into the city unto them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up into his hand because he smote his neighbor unwittingly, see that, and hated him not before time. And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the high priest. We'll get into this in a moment. That shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come unto his own city and unto his own house and unto the city whom whence he fled. So when anyone, Israelite or alien that was among them, accidentally caused the death of another, that person was to immediately flee to the nearest city of refuge for sanctuary so that his or her life might be spared. And not just that, but there would be a fair investigation made into the circumstances of the death. In every city, no matter where that person had been, it's a half a day journey. Now, they journeyed usually by walking, and I imagine that dude was probably jogging. Looking over his shoulder the whole time. I don't think it's difficult to see the spiritual parallels in this system. Who would the city city of refuge represent, do you think? <laughs> yeah, the city of refuge represents Jesus. Psalms 9 and verse 9 says, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Isaiah 32 and verse 2 says, A man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And of course in that scripture, the man spoken of here is the Messiah. <laughs> and he would be to his people a source of comfort, contentment, a rest, a place of protection and shelter. As Isaiah is saying, in, in the dry and burning desert, he would be as a life-giving stream. The cooling shade of a great rock. 
And Jesus is our rock, isn't he? So Jesus, Jesus provides refuge for those who believe. Who would the avenger of blood represent, do you think? That would be Satan. 1 Peter 5.8, we know this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And in speaking of Satan, the last part of Revelation 12, verse 10 says, For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So Satan can be seen as the one seeking for the death of the innocent or the one who's accused. <clears throat> Who would the slayer represent? <laughs> He'd represent the sinner. We're all responsible, friends. Did you know that? We're all responsible for unintentional manslaughter of Jesus at Calvary. We didn't stand there, but by our sins we surely did. Acts 3. Acts 3, verses 13-19. I'll read them real quickly, but that tells us that we are corporately guilty of the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Who was that? That would have been Barabbas, wouldn't it? Give us Barabbas, right? <clears throat> Verse 15, and killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance you did it, he says, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And so Peter's telling these men, and he's telling us, that though we weren't present during the trial and death of Christ, we are just as guilty. Our sins caused His death. But there was given, there was given a place of refuge for us from the avenger. <laughs> Hebrews 6 verse 18 says in part, We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. We can have strong encouragement because we have a refuge in Jesus who will plead our case to the elder who's at the gate. That's our Father in heaven. The Bible says that the only hope for the slayer was to get to the city of refuge. He was in a desperate situation. He had absolutely no hope except what was offered him through the wisdom of God. God opened up that hope. If you can get to a city of refuge before the avenger gets you. I mean, there was hope. And exactly the same is true today for every inhabitant of planet Earth. Did you know that? There is hope. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And our only hope is the, the one name in Acts 4.12, right? One name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. Whereby we must be saved. That's Jesus Christ, isn't it? And this simple fact is the core of the gospel. Salvation is full 
and free through Jesus Christ alone. I don't care what Joel Osteen says. Don't believe him. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's the sinner's only hope, is Jesus Christ. Proverbs 18, verse 10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Something else I think that we need to point out about this that we need to understand too in this spiritual lesson is that the slayer had no time to lose when he realized the condition he was in. The Bible says that immediately he runneth to the city of refuge. He didn't delay. And I'll tell you, those books throughout eternity that we'll be able to look at will reveal the multitudes of people who were lost that might have been saved if they would have just responded to the call of Christ when it first was given to them. But sadly, many allow the voice of the Holy Spirit to become faint and, and they fail to repent when they have that opportunity to. I want you to notice as well that the slayer was not admitted to the city of refuge until after he had declared his cause. Did you catch that? Verse 4. He declares his cause in the ears of the elders of that city. You know, if you read throughout the Old Testament, you find in those the cities uh, in, in Israel, it was customary that the judges or the elders of the city would sit at the entering gate of the city. And they would transact all that legal business right there at the gate of the city. It had to be done before you were allowed entrance into the city, see? And so the slayer had to confess his, his misdeed and own up to his mistake, even if it was an accident. He had to tell them what had happened. And the elders were required to hear the case and make a decision whether to grant refuge or not. So they had to do an investigation, didn't they? And so likewise, believers today, we've got to confess our sins to God and experience genuine repentance before we can be admitted into Christ. He, because He's the spiritual city of refuge. You see the parallels there? The lesson? And thankfully, God has given us the assurance that He's anxious to forgive us our sins. <laughs> First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, what, what's it say? He is what? He's faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So remember that confession of sin is not only a legal requirement, but it is also an essential part of our spiritual growth as a Christian. Because God is omniscient, isn't He? He doesn't need us to, to fill Him in on the rights and wrongs as if He didn't know what had happened, right? <laughs> We're the ones who need to know. We need to recognize, don't we, exactly what we are. We're guilty. And, uh, and recognize the claims of God's law, His just law. And so we need to realize the awfulness of sin, the sin that costs the life of Jesus Christ. And until we realize uh, the hatefulness of sin, the magnitude of Jesus' great sacrifice on our behalf, we're not ready, really. And God is neither to give us eternal life, to give us that companionship of the redeemed. We will not be allowed into that city of refuge. So we must confess and repent. Confession to the elders, however, didn't guarantee passage into the city of refuge in a permanent haven. Notice what it says in Deuteronomy 19, verses 11 and 12. But if any man hate his neighbor, and lie in wait for him, and rise up against him, and smite him mortally that he die, and fleeth into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and fetch him thence, and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. So, speaking here to a murderer, isn't it? An unrepentant person. So you couldn't just run to a city of refuge for hiding. (laughs) 
You had to plead your case. And so a fake repentance for a a, a premeditated murder didn't gain that slayer any safety whatsoever. It's the true in the spiritual sense as well. Because it's not lip service, is it? But heart service that, that Christ desires. The Bible speaks of godly sorrow. It speaks of a, a, a worldly sorrow. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And Psalms 34, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And as an immigrant uh, seeking refuge in America during the early part of the 20th century, arriving there at New York City, you were taken to the immigration station there at Ellis, Ellis Island. You were to be processed. That's kind of like the investigation process for the city of refuge, right? And if your papers were in order and you were in reasonably good health, the Ellis Island inspection process would last approximately three to five hours (laughs) most of the day. The inspections took place in what they called the registry room. That was where doctors would briefly scan every immigrant for, you know, obvious physical ailments. Um, The ship's manifest log contained the immigrant's name and his or her Answers to 29 questions. How they came up with 29, I'm not sure. But there were 29 questions that they had to answer. And this document was used by those legal inspectors to cross-examine the immigrant during that legal inspection. The two main reasons why an immigrant would be uh, excluded refuge were if a doctor diagnosed that that immigrant had a contagious disease because it would endanger the public health. Or if a legal inspector thought the immigrant was likely to become a public charge, which means he'd have to be supported by the public, or an illegal contract laborer. Some similarities to today, right? Many of those seeking refuge would lie about their health or legal status just to get into this place of refuge. Many profess to be Christians too, don't they? So so that they have access to a place of refuge. And Jesus talked about that. He talked about these, these people who make a profession in Matthew chapter 7. He said that many would be lost while claiming to be saved, having done wonderful things in the name of the Lord, right? I've shared this with you before, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day. Now notice he says, many. He doesn't say few. He says many. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them... Who's them? The many. (laughs) I never knew you. Depart from me that work iniquity. And so these workers of iniquity, they flee to the city for refuge, but it's all a pretense, see? A faith that justifies sin is not a saving faith. You'll never see a person into that heavenly city of refuge. It's all presumption. And just as there were standards that must be met before being allowed into the country as an immigrant and to enter into the city of refuge, there are standards that must be met to enter into the kingdom of God. Some wonderful lessons in this, Joshua 20. What did we just read there? The Word says that we must do what? The will of our Father that's in heaven. But there's another lesson we need to learn here too. Those who lived within the city of refuge had a work to do for others. 
God instructed his people to prepare a way to the cities of refuge. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 3. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 3. Thou shalt prepare thee a way, and divide the coasts of thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee to inherit, into three parts, that every slayer may flee thither. So he's saying, while the condition of the roads in ancient Palestine, actually they were pretty terrible. (laughs) They were pretty deplorable. The roads leading to the cities of refuge were to be kept in pristine condition at all times. I mean, there'd be no point in telling an innocent fugitive to run for his life if the roads were impassable, right? Imagine if you're running for your life only to break a leg or something tripping in a pothole. Well, well, somebody who's trying to kill you is, you know, in pursuit. And we have the same responsibility today, beloved, to keep the way to Jesus clear at all times. And this means more than being a road sign that points to Jesus, but actively keeping the road clear of obstacles, not being a stumbling block to those who are seeking that city of refuge that is Christ. You see that? Let us not be a pothole for someone. (laughs) And like John the Baptist, real Christians are road workers maintaining the highway to our King. Mark 1 and verse 3 says, Prepare ye the way the Lord make His paths straight. And quoting Isaiah in Luke 3, verses 5 and 6, Jesus said, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You remember that, this reminds me, you remember the crippled man in Mark 2? His friends lowered him into the presence of Jesus through the roof. You remember him? Why was it necessary for his friends to do something basically that was pretty radical? I mean, they, they crashed that gathering, they took him through the roof. Do you know why? Think about it. The Bible says that they could not get to Jesus any other way because of the crowd that was surrounding Christ. There's a lot of lessons in that story too. But the crowd was made up for the most part of the followers of Jesus. And yet this man could not get to Jesus. So it was the followers of Jesus that were preventing the people with the greatest needs from getting to Him. And that happens, I think, more than we really really think. We've all probably heard someone say, well, if that's how Christians act, I don't want to be a Christian. You ever run into that? We quit attending church when I was around six years old because my father was turned off by the the presumptive faith of the hypocrites. The leaders would speak one thing and then turn right around and live completely different. They were a stumbling block to my father. They were a pothole on the road to the city of refuge. But I thank God that this didn't turn my father completely away from the voice of God as he died a believer in the Savior. But what about us today? Are we stumbling blocks on the road of refuge? Friends, that's why my whole ministry life, messages I give have to do with character. (laughs) Because that was Jesus' message. That's what he means by come unto me and be saved. He wants to change us to be like him in his perfect righteous character. Isaiah 43 and verse 10 says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, 
neither shall there be after me. And so, friends, all who acknowledge God are commissioned to bear witness concerning Him before the world. We're not just to be a road sign. I mean, we are to be road signs, but not just a road sign. (laughs) Paul called Christians ambassadors for Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.20. As followers of Jesus, we must often ask ourselves whether or not we are directing people towards Jesus by our witness or away from Jesus by obstructing their view or their walk. We should ask ourselves that every day. The end of the day, how was my day? Was I an obstruction or was I good at directing? Another truth we learn from the biblical cities of refuge is that being admitted to the city didn't necessarily settle the final fate of the fugitive. After having been admitted, the slayer stood in judgment, didn't he? And in his, his case was carefully investigated. So in like manner, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Prophet Daniel wrote of the judgment being set and the books being opened. Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. He said, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Wow. It should make us tremble to think that we have to come before that. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. It's the first angel's message, isn't it? Part of it. These books contain everything about us. Contains how we lived while on this earth. Everything. The words we've spoken, our actions, our inactions. In fact, our case is going to be decided by what's written in those books. The record Revelation 3 and verse 5 says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So those who overcometh sin through the grace of Christ will have their names retained in the book of life. So it's not only the profession of Christ that's going to save a person, is it? But the profession of Christ that redeems us. I like that. The good news is that Christ is more willing to save us than we are to be saved. <laughs> and all who come to Him, He will in what? No wise cast out. And so... When we possess Christ, we can face the judgment with faith in His power to save. And this this is why Paul says we are to come boldly to the throne of grace and we can have confidence in the judgment because we have Christ living within. Our confidence is in Christ. We have an advocate with the Father, right? Now, when you think about it, we're talking about the cities of refuge, and and the only refuge, of course, is Christ. The city of refuge could have seemed like captivity for a fugitive. As long as the high priest lived, the slayer had to remain within the walls of that city. If he ventured outside the walls at any time, the avenger of blood was free to take his life. As long as we're in Christ, that avenger cannot get us. He cannot take our eternal life. 
Therefore, it's the best interest of that fugitive to stay securely inside the city, right? Yet inside the city was freedom, freedom to live. 1 John 5, 12, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You see the incredible parallels here, the lessons that God has had, He has for us? Have you ever heard anybody say that living a Christian life is just too restricting? Or that the church standards are too high? <laughs> well, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for you, so... <laughs> you <know. laughs> but you didn't, weren't raised in it. I I just I just think when I hear somebody say something like that, I think those people don't put much value on their life until it's threatened. The old saying: "There are no atheists in foxholes." A person's beliefs seem to change dramatically when they're faced with a serious and immediate threat of death. Have you? Have you noticed that? I mean, I've heard stories. I've read stories. I've seen seen that. I mean, when I was in the hospital, I mean, it does... You don't know what's going on. You may be on your deathbed, and you have things go through your mind. Even as a Christian. But those fleeing the slayer weren't worrying about the standards or restrictions of living in the city of refuge. They knew that if they reached the city, they would live. See? They would be free from the slayer. Outside the the city of refuge was freedom also, but it was freedom to die, right? In Christ there is freedom, while outside of Christ there is an angry devil ready to to, uh, fill every life with misery and hopelessness, ultimately ending in eternal death in the lake of fire. And as Jesus said, if the Son therefore shall make you free, what? You shall be free indeed. Another interesting point is that where people live has a great impact on nearly every aspect of their lives. Isn't that true? A person who, who's born and raised in Attica, let's say Indiana, will dress a lot differently from somebody born and raised in Fiji. You know, right? Or someone from New Orleans would likely eat different foods than someone from Kansas. We know this, don't we? I can assure you that someone in Jackson, Mississippi talks a lot differently than someone in Boston, Massachusetts. Not only are their accents different, but also they discuss different subjects because they're familiar with different things. When placed together, each will learn something about the other and be changed because of it. That's what's really neat about it. In the same way, the Christian surrender to Jesus, dwelling in Him, that spiritual city of refuge, will enjoy a life that's constantly being molded after His pattern, His character. And so a life in Christ is a life where every fiber of of our being is under the influence of the Spirit of God. And the Christian is to to say, like Psalms 91 too. they say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. He's my God, in Him will I trust. Now we go back to Joshua 20. I'll be closing up here in just a moment. <laughs> how, how long was the fugitive to stay in the city of refuge? Did you catch that? Joshua 20, verse 6, it says, And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come into his own city and unto his own house and unto the city from whence he fled. This is, this is the fantastic part here. And most people miss it. When the high priest died, Then the fugitive was free to return to his home without threat of revenge or retribution on the part of the dead person's family. In fact, tradition says that the wife of the high priest was responsible for feeding the fugitive so that they would not uh, hope for the sudden death of her husband. (laughs) Okay? Because they wanted to get back home, right? So does this mean we should remain surrendered to Jesus until he dies? Well, of course not. What's Jesus doing now? 1 John 2 and verse 1. He says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. 
And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he's being our advocate, isn't he? Hebrews 7 and verse 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto him by God. Unto God by him, excuse me. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So he's being our advocate. He's intercessing for us. Hebrews 8. Verses 1 and 2. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. So Jesus is our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's our high priest and he's pleading our case before the Father, before the angels, before the unfallen worlds that we can be trusted to become a citizen of heaven through the merits of Christ. Not because we, we have overcome anything through our own power, but because we've accepted the gift of Christ's death in our behalf at Calvary. And we trust Him. And we cooperate with Him to change us into His image. That is qualification for citizenship in that eternal city, the New Jerusalem. To be a resident of heaven. Will Jesus remain our high priest forever? No. Because one day he will lay off his priestly robes and return to the earth as a conquering king. One day the office of high priest will end. It will die. This is the lesson we get from the city of refuge. When when that high priest dies, you don't have an avenger seeking to kill you anymore. The accuser of the brethren will be no more. One of these days. There will be no longer a need for a high priest. Jesus then becomes king. The wonderful news for people everywhere is that Jesus, the king of kings, is coming soon. One day the waiting will be over. Sin and death will be no more. The avenger of blood will be gone. Praise God. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, as Paul says. I'm sure the fugitive often felt as though their time of freedom might never come while waiting inside that city of refuge. Sometimes we've cried out within our hearts to the Lord, How long, Lord, until you return and take us home to be with you? How long do do we have to witness sin and death and misery in this world? But the Lord teaches us to be patient as He prepares us to meet Him when He comes. He's working for a, on a place for us while He's there, isn't He? That's what we find in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled, He says. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's not a liar, is He? I go to prepare a place for Jerome. And for dead. Why? I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again to receive you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. That's what he's doing. So I close up here. In November of 1954, the last detainee a Norwegian merchant seaman named Arnie Peterson was released and Ellis Island officially closed its doors. And today, Ellis Island is a museum. It silently preaches sermons about times past when people flocked to, to New York City in search of a place of refuge. But there is another city on which the attention of the world, I think, needs to be focused upon. And it's not New York. It's New Jerusalem. Those of every nation and kindred and tongue and people must be directed to the wonderful place of refuge in Christ. And if faithful, they will have right to enter into that city that He's preparing. So by dwelling in Christ, we can live without fear of the avenger of blood and have the assurance of a blessed eternity with Jesus. So friends, if you 
are tired of running from your sins, of feeling trapped in a hopeless situation maybe, um, I'd like to invite you to come to Jesus. And if you'll come to Him and ask Him by faith, He'll save you and make a place for you in the city of refuge. And there you will be free to live for eternity. Because one day the devil is going to be destroyed. There will no longer be avenger of blood. The question is, will we be in the city of refuge? Or will we be outside that wall? That's the question, isn't it? Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, He said, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus will give you life. He's the one place of refuge we all need. He is the only refuge. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus, our city of refuge. We thank you for your promises to us. And we pray, Lord, that you forgive us where we failed and forgive us our sins and help us, Lord, to remain within those city walls. And teach us patience while we wait for our Lord's coming. And help us not just to be road signs to Jesus, uh, but to, to be those who will guide people Help us not to be potholes on the road to the city of refuges in Jesus. Uh, Lord, give us the, the, the character uh, attributes of Christ and give us that love that people may see Jesus in us and, and that in itself be a draw to our family and our, our friends, our neighbors, a draw to Jesus as we lift Him up. That's the promise. If he be lifted up, he will draw all men unto him. Let us not get in the way of that, but be earnest workers for him. We thank you again for the Sabbath day. We pray that you will continue to be with us and help us, Lord, to rest, for we're coming into a heavy battle. It's on the horizon. May we be prepared for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.